While you're opening your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, I have a question for you. Are you a fixer or a repenter? A fixer or a repenter? As I was growing up, I became very proficient, at least I thought, at gluing together my mother's knickknacks that I broke. <laughs> I became the fixer. Fifty years ago, they didn't have Gorilla Glue, they just had Elmer's, whatever, yeah, I didn't have very much, but we used to glue them together. I used to buy my mother those blue mountain pottery things, you know, those long neck geese and all that, swans and stuff like that. She acted like she loved them, so I'd keep buying her more, and then I'd proceed to pick them off with a ball as I was throwing it at the cat or my sister, or I'm not sure what, and that was strictly forbidden behavior in the house, so rather than own up to my sin, I became very good at fixing and repairing because I wanted to continue to preserve my reputation as the favored child in the family and in my pride I did what I could to fix and hide my sin and I learned of course of the emotional toll of that living in hiding with guilt wondering what day your mother would discover the fractures on her knickknacks a lot of God's people live that way you know we have a whole string of things that we're carrying around in our lives fixed things we've tried to patch together with our own glue instead of owning up before God repenting coming clean having our guilt and our sins washed away and a relationship restored with the living God. Not living in hiding, not living with guilt, but living clean before Him. Well, Zechariah the prophet has a lot to say about this. In fact, the living God spoke through him. And we're going to look at the first chapter only of this great prophecy today. Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of this very complex prophecy in the fall. God has something to say to us today about repentance of many theological truths. In terms of practical lifestyle, I'm not sure there's anything as important as what we are going to learn today about repentance and how critical and important it is for us. People don't repent easily. We hope we can just glue our problem and get on with our life and our relationship with Jesus, and God won't have it. The returning exiles, of course, have, we discovered in the book of Haggai, have started to rebuild the temple. The Persian king had allowed them to come back, and they got to work fixing the temple, hoping that their reputations as Judah, as God's people, would be reinstated by the Lord on the basis of their activity. That they could make things on the outside look good again. And it is two months later when Zechariah the prophet comes forth with this prophecy. Literally saying that gluing together the broken temple is not acceptable to the living God if your lives are not in line with His. So we pick up the text in verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. It's November 520 B.C. Two months after the exiles who had returned have started to rebuild. We learn in the book of Nehemiah that Edo was a priestly family, so Zechariah was from a priestly line. His grandfather was a priest. We also learn from Jesus that Zechariah was assassinated for offering this prophecy. So I think it's important for us to understand the cost of this scripture to us. 
the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. I guess when you start a prophecy that way, it may not end well for you. The Lord was not just angry, but very angry. Excuse me. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? And then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. They were gluing the temple together, but God went after their very broken lives. Their forefathers had specialized in religious phoniness, patching up the outside, looking good with religious ritual from external eyes, but God wasn't having it. He wasn't having it anymore. And quite frankly, beloved, he won't have it in our lives either. He demands repentance. So if you're really serious about returning to the Lord, if you're really serious about a relationship with the Lord, listen to the words of the Lord here today. Let's pray. Father, as we um, bow before your truth, I pray, O God, that we might not, as they did, stop listening, stop paying attention, feel like we've heard this all before, there's nothing new here. I pray, O God, that we might recognize the significance of your grace to us through this text. You are telling us how to have an abundant life relationship with the living God. There could be nothing more important than that. And so, Father, I pray that we would perk up our ears today and open up our hearts. And where we have been gluing our lives together and trailing along evil ways and practices that displease you and not listening to you, not paying attention, I pray, oh God, that that would end, that that would end today. I pray, Father, that you would, by your grace, and we're thankful for it, that you would open up stubborn places in our life, reveal them to us, and help us to chase them away. Help us to turn away from and turn to the living Christ, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The temptation in our lives, the tendency of our lives, is to be followers of Jesus, but not to live repentant lives. We sort of understand the concept or the idea of repentance as it introduced us to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we may never have heard of the idea that To have an ongoing vital relationship with Christ, we have to live a repentant life. God has something to say to you today about repentance. And it's very important. Attempting to follow God without owning up to our sins, without facing the music, if you will, without seeking and receiving of forgiveness from the Lord, without turning away from that sinful behavior, will not work. We cannot have a vital, ongoing, abundant life relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ unless we actually turn from our sin to the living Christ. That's the definition of repentance. The vast numbers of of people are simply trying 
to add Jesus to their already messed up lives and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus will not allow you to follow him until you have turned away from the things that keep you from him. That's the message of Zechariah. That's the message that, that flows through all of the scriptures. How can you tell if you may be guilty of this? Well, I think all of us, as we look around in the Christian community, we wonder at times, how can so many people be two-timing the Lord? How can they be so disloyal to the Lord? How can they be living this way, uh, one way uh, out when people don't see them or whatever, and, they're, and, and, and they live this way in church? How can people be living such a, a duplicitous life with God? How, how is it that Christians can so often mistreat other believers? Or live complacent, apathetic lives. As you read through this text, the, well, chapter 1, we'll, we'll hopefully get to it. Uh, there, there is one thing that God is not. He's not complacent. He's not apathetic. He's passionate. And, and to come into a life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ brings with it a certain reality of passion. God is a passionate God to be complacent and apathetic about the Lord Jesus Christ is a signal that something might not be right in your heart. Or maybe you're angry or bitter or jealous or cold or judgmental. I, I've seen a number of people who, um, in their judgmentalism, in, in the so-called Christian context spend many of their days looking around to find someone who they can criticize, presumably, I always think, because they're looking for someone who's sinning worse than them so they can feel better about themselves. That's evidence of not living a repentant life. You cannot, unless... You have an ongoing journey of brokenness and repentance before God. You cannot find your way into the right place of God's heart in terms of relationship with Him. So today, if you're really serious about a relationship with God, I've got three things to say to you from Zechariah. And the first is this. You cannot follow the Lord until and unless you have faced and repented of your rebellious sinfulness. That's why God, the first thing he says in this um, statement through Zechariah is, return to me, return to me. Um, he will not share your heart with you. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of you to be open before him. He wants all complete honesty before him. He knows exactly what's going on. He wants you to face up to it. You cannot have a relationship with God and bypass repentance. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Book ends. You cannot come to faith in Christ through salvation without repentance, and you cannot have an ongoing relationship with Jesus without an ongoing relationship with him of repentance. You may not just start hanging out with Jesus. Never have we been presented with that. And after and during your lifestyle of sinfulness, you can't just go on and pick up where you're sinning and hang out with Jesus. He, he will not have it. He, he talks about your forefathers were like that. That's what they tried to do over and over again. They just carry along their sins with them and think that their reputation as Israel was enough of a resume that I'd be pleased with them. And now here you are back building the temple, rebuilding your houses, and think that your good work of rebuilding that temple is going to put you in good stead with me. It will not. How important is this concept of repentance? We could spend 
the rest of our time together going through scriptural texts to talk about its importance. I'm, I'm going to go through a sample with you because I, I want you to see just how important. I don't want you to leave here this morning and say, I'm not sure what Rick was talking about today. I'm going to say repentance so many times, ad nauseum, repent so many times that you will know what we're talking about. But the Bible talks about it all the time. We see it everywhere. We maybe haven't paid attention to it. That's the problem. They were not listening to God. They were not paying attention to Him. Maybe we haven't been paying attention, but it's everywhere. You can't miss it. Ezekiel 30. Therefore, O house, Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. This is Old Testament conversion. It's not different than the theology of the New Testament. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die in your unrepentance? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Well, what do you think the first sermons are that Jesus picked up on in Matthew? First recorded sermons of Christ himself. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Comes out of the desert preaching. What does Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. After the temptation of Christ, after he comes out of the desert a second time, from that time on, Jesus began to preach at, in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As we go through the pages of Scripture, gospel after gospel, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know this. In Luke chapter 15, it says in two places there, there is rejoicing in heaven when one person repents. In Luke um, chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, at the time when, when the, the tower in Siloam fell and 18 people died and perished, and they were asking Jesus questions about how could this happen? What should we learn about this? And Jesus says to them this, this is the first thing a message that he brings to them. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. We continue our journey through the scriptures. We come to um, Acts. In Acts chapter uh, 2 and verse 38, Peter is preaching a sermon, and he says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the same message, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And on and on it goes. We could continue on throughout the scriptures. It is a central theological theme for God's people to have a relationship that's vital with the living God. And we must know what it means. Religious effort will not enjoy God's favor unless the rebellious, those who are sinning, have received God's absolution through forgiveness. That's why he calls us to forgive one another. Relationships can't be restored without forgiveness. And I don't know if you caught it here, but it says the Lord was, in verse 2, very angry. I don't really want to make the Lord angry. Do you? Do you want to make the Lord angry? I sure don't want to make the Lord very angry. And why is he very angry? Why is this such a big deal to God? In this text and throughout text upon text... You will encounter, when, you're, when it's identifying uh, the living God, you'll see the word Lord, and you'll see it in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
When you see that, it is referencing the covenant-keeping God. This is why in, in this section, return to me declares the almighty covenant-keeping God, and I will return to you, says the almighty covenant-keeping God, to covenant-breaking people. We, we don't ponder this enough. We don't think about what God has done for us. We don't think about the fact that our God is never, ever disloyal to us. He always keeps His covenant with us. And it's, it's, it's His grace to us. This is something we didn't deserve. It's the almighty Creator God Look down at a rebellious creation that had no business being though so audacious as to rebel against the Creator God, but nevertheless we did. And because of His grace, not because of anything we deserved or anything we did that was good, but be sheerly because of His loving grace, He calls out to us and invites us into a covenant relationship with Him. And he promises to us that I will never break my covenant with you. And we proceed to daily break our covenant with him. That's why he's very angry. He's very angry for us. His heart is broken that we would risk this abundant relationship with a covenant-keeping God and throw it all away for lesser gods and evil practices and evil ways. God's like, you would choose that over me? And so... He calls us in repentance to return to covenant loyalty. I'm keeping my promises to you. And I have invaded your life with the power of my Holy Spirit to enable you to keep your promises to me. I haven't left you alone. I haven't left you on your own strength. I have given you every, all the divine power that raised Jesus from the dead to keep your promises to me. Now repent. In the presence of repentance, relationship finally happens. That's how we came to know Jesus in the first place. There isn't a one of you who just added Jesus to your life. That's what Hindus do. That's not what Christians do. Christians don't add Jesus as just another God to their life. They forsake all other gods. They forsake their sin. They own up to their rebellious ways. They turn from that and turn to the living God. That's the definition of repentance. And it's not a one-time event, brothers and sisters. It's an ongoing relationship. And he says here, return to me. Don't return to just reading your Bible. Don't think you can just return to church. Don't think you can just return to your way of living. Return to me. This is relational. This is about you and me in relationship. This is not about religion. This is not about gluing your life back together like you've tried so many times to do and look good in front of everybody else but continue to haul along that baggage that you've never owned up to. This is about you and me. I know you. And you get to know me. He says here, where are your forefathers now? Verse 5. Where are your prophets? But my words and my decrees as a covenant-keeping God 
are what bring you the words of life. And if you return to me, he says, I will return to you. But in the absence of repentance, judgment will come. Your forefathers would not turn from their evil ways or their evil practices. They would not listen. They would not pay attention, verse 4. The fathers felt the full wrath. The forefathers, this is what the, the, the waves of exile, the waves of punishment, the waves of discipline, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greek yet to come, Rome yet to come. Over and over and over again. Why? Because they would never listen to him and repent. They were just fixers, not repenters. Do not be like them, God says, verse 4. Do not be like your forefathers. Do not be like them. You are hearers of God's word. You have the opportunity as of today to change, to experience radical change in your life, transformation. Repentance brings transformation. For some reason, there's this pop cultural statement out there that says, God is angry at sin, not the sinner. Where do you get that from? He says right here, I'm very angry, verse 2, with your forefathers. God is angry at sinners for their sin. And he relentlessly pursues our repentance. You know why? Because our destiny is not wrath, the wrath of God. Beloved, God will, God will dog you with this. If you are harboring sin in your life, you are going to continue to be miserable until you fess up, get forgiveness, and return to God. Say no to your sin and turn to God. The reason is simple. Look at I think it's worth looking at. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And see this for your own eyes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us, the church his real people, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He will continue to convict you of sinfulness by his Holy Spirit until you repent, because your destiny is not the wrath of God. Your destiny is salvation through Jesus Christ. God's love does not eliminate accountability. It, in fact, elevates it. He loves you so much. He will not let you stay here unrepentant. So what did they do? It says at the end of verse 6, Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. That's repentance. You see it? They owned up to their sinfulness. Stop hiding your sinfulness and own up to the Lord. He knows what's going on. You're not hiding anything from God. I hid these broken things from my mother for years and years and years. It eventually came out. And then I started getting blamed for everything that was broken. <laughs> God already knows what's going on in your heart. And he's, he's inviting you, he's asking you, when, when do you want to return? When, when, can, when can we have this relationship that you know you want back? When, when, can, when can you enjoy what Jesus promised you, abundant life? When, when do you want to enjoy that? Do you want to keep dragging this stuff along and not enjoying abundant life? That's what he puts before us here. And here's what happened, of course. They're, they're building away. They're building the, 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 the temple. They're restoring the temple. They're building their houses that have been crushed. They, they've come back to, from, from exile. They come back to see what's going on. And Jeremiah had promised that there were 70 years in exile, and the time was, was, was up. And then they're wondering as they look around at the ruins and they're building with stones that have been burned. And I mean, I mean, think about this. Think about whether you live in Oshawa or Whitby or wherever you live. Think about 
somehow uh, God disciplines us and, and we're exiled off to some other place and all of our houses and our church is all burned down and everything's destroyed and ruined and we come back and we're building a way, we're trying to fix our house, we're trying to fix our church. Our hearts are broken and we hear God say, I'm very angry with your forefathers return to me, and we're saying, wait a second, I thought as we were building these rocks and building this church all over again, I thought we were, I thought this was a symbol of the fact that we'd return to you. And God is two months later saying, return, what are you talking about return to you? The problem is we can be so engaged in the work of God That we think we're living a repentant, clean life before God, living an abundant life before God, and God goes penetrating into our hearts and says, no, but what about this thing in your life? And what about that thing in your life? And and what about that? They're all keeping you from me in the relationship that you could have. And so they're discouraged. When God starts to do a a breaking work in our lives, it's painful and it hurts. And he works us over. And, and, And we're thinking to ourselves, okay, okay, I give up, I repent. And we're hoping that everything will be changed in an instant. And it isn't changed in an instant. Our our circumstances, our situation doesn't doesn't necessarily change right away. We still have the broken temple, we still got the ruined house. But the love of God is so incredibly extreme. He grants to Zechariah the prophet a vision. In fact, he grants to him eight visions. We read in the text on the 24th day of the 11th month, February 15th, 519 B.C. So months have gone by after what God has said at first. Months have gone by. During the night, it says, I had a vision. This is not a dream. He wants us all to know that it was during the night, and I was very much conscious. I had a vision. And there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked, what are these, my lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. And then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. And then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these, sev- with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to, that, to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. See how many times the Lord Almighty is identified there? The covenant-keeping, almighty, all-powerful God is speaking. Do you realize, beloved, what's happening here? The prophet Zechariah is giving us a bleacher seat to what God intends to sculpt in his redemptive artwork. It continues on throughout all of the prophecy of Zechariah. We get the curtain, the veil opened up so that we sit with God in the heavenlies. He gives us a backstage pass at what's going on behind the scenes to encourage our hearts. That's how much he loves us. And what we have here is is the fact that God is saying, "Listen, listen, this work of mine will be a struggle, but it doesn't mean the plan is ever in jeopardy. Or should it affect your resolve? It means the plan is really progressing, really happening. Game on. 
It may obstruct your pace. Because there's lots of opposition. But it can't stop God's plan. And so what we see here in this first vision is the greater reality of the universe is unseen. I've said this to you before. What we see with our eyes is nothing in comparison to the reality of what we don't get to see, of what's really going on. The Lord's Prayer, when he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as it is in heaven. We are given a glimpse of what God sees and knows. And they're saying, listen, you said, you said if we returned to you, you'd return to us. Okay, well, I'll give you a vision and let you see that. And so we have this man among the myrtles. This is in response to God's declaration and requirement of repentance. What, what is there here? This is a heart booster. This vision makes the message memorable. This is part of the various ways God spoke in the past, as the writer of Hebrews 1.1 said. So we have a man among the myrtles. We have three colored horses or horses with three colors. We have an angel tour guide, and we have myrtles. Is it clear to you? Well, it is. Who's this man among the myrtles? In verse 11, it says, And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. The others reported to the angel of the Lord. Where have we heard that before? The angel of the Lord. Oh, let me think. Um, Abraham and the three visitors. Do you remember one of them was the angel of the Lord? Uh, Joshua. Before his battle, when he met that soldier to give him encouragement. Uh, what about Manoam? Samson's father, and out of the fire comes the angel of the Lord promising to give him a son. The angel of the Lord, this is none other than the second person of the Godhead. This is Jesus appearing. This is a presentation of Christ himself who is standing among the myrtle trees. What's this all mean? You have three different colored horses. You've got red horses, brown horses, white horses. What is the symbol of, symbolism with respect to horses? Maybe if it said this, locked and loaded three different colored Humvees. Would that say anything to you? See, horses in that day were, were, was a picture of strength and battle readiness and power. And, and, and so you have this man among the myrtles with a horse, uh, with all kinds of horses around him that have gone to and fro throughout all the world because they're dominating the world. These are the, the this is the army of the Lord, all right? And he's standing here, and there's an angel tour guide in verse 9, uh, which we're going to encounter throughout all of these visions. What are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answers. It's not the same as the angel of the Lord. This is another angel, an angel tour guide, and then these myrtles, these myrtle trees. Do we have any myrtle trees here? Like, we have a horticulturalist among us? Howie, we got any myrtle trees around here? Okay. That's why it was very quiet in the first service. They all just looked down. He's asking us a question. Myrtle trees. Myrtle trees, as I understand it, are Middle Eastern small evergreen tree. And they... Um, they have little star-like flowers on them that when you crush the flowers, they emit a rich fragrance. This picture is Jesus standing among the myrtle trees that are, that are um, standing in as Israel. They are representing Israel, God's people. Literally, when they're discouraged, as they look around and say, you promised to return to us, basically the living God is saying, look, 
what you don't see. I'm among you. I've returned to you. And I brought the army and the Lord, the, the Lord of hosts army with me. And I am making something of your lives. And as you find yourselves being crushed like the flowers of a myrtle tree, you are emitting a rich fragrance of the greatness of God's grace. And God goes on to tell us that he is a deeply passionate God. I am very jealous and I am very angry. God will not build his church without building his church. Beloved, what am I saying? A building's just a building. A crowd is just a crowd. God is committed to spiritual restoration. God is committed to rebuilding our hearts that are fully devoted to him. God will not settle with some cheap, imitation of a relationship whereby we put a little cross on our around our neck or say praise Jesus and act like we're all about Jesus he wants a deep repentant broken-hearted relationship with him that keeps short accounts with the living God and that thereby we experience the abundant life relationship with Jesus Christ that salvation has promised to us And he won't settle for anything else. God is present and comforting. Look at what he says here. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'll return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out out over Jerusalem. I will rebuild Zion. And again, proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. Listen, beloved, God is present and comforting, but he links it indivisibly with repentance. If you want to enjoy the ongoing comfort and presence of the Lord, you must live in constant repentance over your sinfulness. Saying no to sin and turning to Jesus. His presence, he promises, brings prosperity. This word overflow is the word of centrifugal force. God's force just moves into your life and takes leanness and changes it to prosperity. And his comfort brings help. Do you need comfort? Live repentantly. Regularly on Sunday mornings when I'm asked to do the pastoral prayer, I will regularly invite you to put up, slip up your hand if you have a, a, a prayer concern on your heart. Yes? I do that for a reason. You think God doesn't know what, you think I think God doesn't know what's on your heart or that, that you have a concern on your heart? He knows that you have a concern on your heart. Why do I go through that exercise? I want to keep reminding you that God cares about you, that God loves you, that God is jealous over you, that God wants to comfort you, and that God is your only help. I want to keep that visually as a reminder. Come to God. Come to Christ for help. He wants to help you. But you must live repentantly. We've run out of time, but let me just say quickly, This second vision in chapter 1, the four horns and the four smiths better than craftsmen, is all tied into the same message. Then, Lord God, why are you hurting us? Why are you allowing us to be hurt? That's what this message is about. Look, look, then I looked up and there before me were four horns. Horns are a symbol of pain. Horns hurt. For them, the agricultural community, they understood about horns. The horns on their livestock were there to hurt intruders. And there before me were four horns, and I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. This is Assyria. This is Egypt. This is Babylon. This is Persia. The horns of discipline. 
And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen or four smiths. And I asked, what are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. But the craftsmen or the smiths have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. God uses things that hurt to get the corrective attention of his people. He will do that in your life. He will not allow you to continue to stray away from him and live an unrepentant life. There is going to be pain over that. And he brings to long awaited justice at the same time those things that brought hurt upon you. God does both things. He uses Assyria and Babylon and Persia to discipline his children and at the same time will bring judgment on them for doing that. That's why it says he's very angry in verse 15 with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. I used them, in other words, to discipline my people, but they went too far. They were creating great acts of evil. And so God says here, I will judge. Listen, uh, beloved, what we all need to know is this. If God seems far away, consider first the distance of your own heart. If today God feels very far away from you, consider the distance of your own heart. If today you are finding yourself in pain and hurt, consider the possibilities that you are living an unrepentant life. If you are nourishing sin in your life, God will not allow you to have enjoyment. At least if you're one of His. If you belong to the Lord, He will not. And there's a reason for that. Because helplessness brings us to the hopeful place of finally learning to live by faith. When we try to fix our own hearts, we become radically independent of God and we start to live in our own strength and we fall flat on our faces because none of us in here are a match for the evil one who tries to tackle us. We are not even a match for the deceitfulness of our own hearts. If we were, we wouldn't have needed Jesus in the first place. And we need him every single day at full blast in our lives. That's why the Apostle Paul said, look at I learned something. When I'm weak, I'm strong. Why? Because now God is at work in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 and following. Also, beloved, know this. No matter how impossible is the obstacle in your life, God can do the impossible. Yes? Can he? He peels back the the curtain and gives us a backstage pass about what he's doing. Later on in this prophecy, he's going to talk about Greece that's yet to come. God knows exactly what's coming. And he is the God of the impossible. So are you in a waiting room? You're in Hope's waiting room. Are you in a hospital bed? You're in Hope's hospital bed. Are you in a prison? You're in Hope's prison. Are you in a, on a, in a vigil right now? You're in hope's vigil. God is a God of the impossible. And finally, this, those, though, who stubbornly continue to reject the expanse of grace of a loving God and refuse to repent will one day face a reckoning with God. So I close this way. Are you chasing after Jesus? but not returning to him. See, returning is entirely different than saying, I'm following Jesus. Returning requires a turn. Turning from something and turning to Jesus. The people who just try to follow along in the wake of Jesus not admitting their sinfulness or trying to patch it up with their own glue are not living a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and will fail miserably, not only to the sin they're already failing to, but multiple sins. Because when God comes knocking on the repentance heart of a believer who truly wants a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
he starts, first of all, to pick away at the obvious, and then he starts to take aim at all of the things that are going on in your life that are separating you from a vital, abundant life relationship of Holy Spirit power in your life. And God is not satisfied until each and every one of us experience that kind of living with him. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father and our God, thank you for the truth of your word. How I ask for all of us today that we would live lives of repentance. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's bow our heads together this moment of opportunity just to reflect on what the living God has spoken into your heart today. I just need to ask you, what is in your life that is worth trading an abundant, vital life relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, we've just sung about being free, set free from our guilt and our sin. That's the amazing thing that Christ has done for us through salvation. And here we are living in a life that is bottled up and guilty and small and not abundant, lean. And at times without hope, why are we living like that? The invitation is quite simple. The Lord says, return to me. Return to me. Turn from what you are putting in place of me and our relationship. Turn from it. Own up to it. I will forgive you. And I will return to you and we will have a relationship. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens that door, I will come in and sup with him. That's not so much a salvation verse as is an ongoing sanctification verse. Are you supping with the Lord? Are you enjoying Him? Or is He distant from you? Oh God, today is a day of repentance and tomorrow and the next day. For anyone who says in his heart he has not sinned is a liar. The truth is not in him. So we come to you today, Lord. We acknowledge that we can have an abundant relationship with you through a life of repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Jesus. And I pray, O oh God, that you would be relentless as your Holy Spirit works us over because we have not been destined to suffer wrath. We have been brought into your kingdom to receive salvation and may we enjoy the fruit of that abundant life in Jesus Christ I pray for his name's sake amen